Well, good morning and, and welcome again. We're glad you're here with us. My name is Paul Buckley. I'm one of the pastors here. It's my privilege to bring God's Word. We are in the book of Exodus, continuing through. We'll be in chapter 20 this morning. Um, we're spending some time in chapters 19 through 24. They, they go together. Uh, last week, we talked about the idea of covenant and these particular aspects of covenant, um, the, the reality, the truth of depending on God's grace and, and fearing God appropriately and obeying Him wholeheartedly. Uh, this is part of what we're called to, an important part, and it's part of, of the covenants in Scripture. There, these elements are there. So we learned about that. We'll take some more time in a couple of weeks to talk a little more about the covenant in the latter part of our section, chapter 24. But what I wanted to do this this morning and next week is to focus on the Ten Commandments, an important aspect. Um, so you can be turning there, chapters, uh, chapter 20, verses 1 through 11. But before we get into that, let me ask you, um, have you seen this mask? Um, we show the, the overhead. Have you seen this mask? Have you seen people wearing this mask? Uh, it's worn by various people. Uh, who uh, on the left and the right politically, who to one degree or another are protesting authoritarian actions and systems. Um, it's a portrayal of a man named Guy Fawkes. He was a notorious revolutionary um, who tried to blow up British Parliament in the 1600s. And, and um, our British friends would know that, that they have an annual Guy Fawkes Day, actually. Um, but that's the, the, the depiction on the mask. And, and it... Um, it represents in, uh, certain points of view that in some ways are true and noble, but, but it carries with it an underlying philosophy that if let loose would wreak destruction on our cultures. That philosophy that, that is there to one degree or another, whether on the left or the right, and, and it is connected to Guy Fawkes and, and the symbol there, we could basically call lawlessness lawlessness. And it influences movements across the political spectrum. It influences things like uh, anarchism. It influences what we would call Christian antinomianism. It influences uh, the Libertarian Party on kind of on the right and the uh, Antifa group, which would be on the left. Um, it comes in many different shapes and forms. And the core idea behind lawlessness and, and anarchy and so forth that might follow uh, is that laws are bad and lack of laws is good, more or less. Now, we need to understand, of course, there are oppressive and unnecessary laws. But I would submit to you that the Scriptures present a very different view of law. The Scriptures, and, and thus God Himself, would view law as essential essential to being human, essential to relating to God and to one another. Law is at the heart of life. And therefore, eliminating good laws is contrary to life. It's contrary to the success and peace of people. Lawlessness is an evil to be avoided. And compliance to the law is a blessing to be pursued. And we're going to see in this section of Scripture where God gives His law. A law is something that must be followed. That's simply what a law is. It's something that must be followed. We talk about the law of gravity, right? We all must follow that. We haven't found a way to get around that one. Um, and other laws are things that must be followed. And God's law must be followed, and God's law is good. And I want to challenge us to address the Guy Fawkes in all of us. 
this tendency that we all have to, to not want to submit to law, to not love law, to not understand its role and not embrace it properly. So we're going to dig into this section. We're going to dig into what the Scripture teaches us about law. And I trust be challenged and I trust be conformed to the law by the grace of God. So let's pray and seek the Lord for this. Lord, we thank you. Thank you for your word that it guides us, it teaches us. Lord, we need not be subject to the, the whims of culture, uh, the changes of culture, Lord, but we can stand on your word, which is true and reliable and good. And I pray, Lord, you'd help us to hear your truth and to hear your voice from your word. And I pray you'd help me, Lord, to properly proclaim and teach and engage your word to serve you and to serve your precious people and to serve all those who would hear that they might understand you and find in you life and truth. I ask in Christ's name, amen. Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 11. We're just going to go through the first part of the Ten Commandments, the part related to relating to God. It says in verse 1, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. God's word from Exodus chapter 21 through 11. We'll focus on that first part of the Ten Commandments, the first four commandments that have to do with relating to God. Next week, we'll, we'll look at the latter six that have to do with relating to one another. Um, but this passage teaches us that we are called into a, a covenant relationship with God where we respond to His great love by loving Him according to His law. We are called to a covenant relationship with God where we respond to His great love by loving Him according to His law. To say it succinctly, we must love God according to his law. Some background before we dig into the, the commandments themselves. Um, just remember that this is all in the context of covenant, that God is a covenant-making and a covenant-keeping God. And if we are to understand how we are to relate to him, we must understand covenant. A covenant is, is an official social contract. Um, between two parties, it would normally specify mutual obligations and benefits in certain terms. And God is a God of covenant. He re always relates to mankind through covenant, whether it's explicit or implicit. So starting with Adam and Eve, going through Noah, Abraham, this covenant, the Sinai covenant, later through David, and then ultimately through the fulfillment of all the previous covenants, Jesus Christ, the ultimate human, God in the flesh. So he's a covenant-making covenant-keeping God. 
and Jesus is the fulfillment of the covenants. And, and we now, as believers, live under this covenant by grace through faith. So we learned last week about the, the nature of these covenants. Uh, in them, we depend on God's grace. We fear Him appropriately. We obey Him wholeheartedly. And this covenant, uh, the Sinai covenant, is a different covenant than the new covenant. That's important to understand. It's different in nature and substance and in details. But within this covenant are many promises and many forms and types that point towards the new covenant. And the effect of this covenant, the Sinai covenant, should be that it points its members to a better covenant, to the need for a better covenant. Uh, and the fact that they can't keep the law and the fact that within it there are, are promises of mercy and grace and fulfillment in Christ. So the Old Testament believer would have experienced this old covenant and turned to God for mercy. So prime example, of course, would be David, King David, who looked to the Lord for mercy. And, and when he violated the covenant, and even gr uh, grievously, he looked to God for mercy. He looked towards a better covenant ultimately in Christ and spoke of that prophetically. So this covenant, though, is very important for understanding what, who God is and what it's like to be his people. Um, and in this section, chapters 19 through 24, it's, it's laid out, it's reiterated. Actually, we, we first kind of see the formal aspects of the covenant in chapter 19, verses 4 through 6. And God says, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. So he, the first thing he says is, I've been gracious to you. I've rescued you. I've, I've taken you up on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice, so obeying his voice and keeping my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel, God said to Moses. So um, this is the covenant laid out here. God has been gracious. Now I want you to hear my voice and keep the covenant. And if you do, you'll, you will be blessed and a blessing. It's a wonderful covenant, actually. Uh, it's fantastic because... Uh, the gracious God has rescued them from Egypt to make them his treasured possession. And they need only respond to his voice and walk in his ways. And they'll be, a, they'll be, a, they'll be blessed themselves and a blessing to the whole world. His treasured possession. It's, it's a wonderful covenant. Now we'll see later that they didn't keep it. They couldn't keep it. Um, so one aspect here, of course, in this covenant is that God says, you obey my voice. And so obedience to God is a really important part of covenant with God. Obedience to God is a really important part of covenant with God. And the law is really obedience to God. It's, it's the details of how we obey Him, what we must do, what He calls us to do. So these Ten Commandments here are actually given by the very voice of God. God is speaking. They're hearing God speak. They're hearing His voice at this point. This is God speaking with uh, His thunderous voice and saying, these are the things you are to do in covenant, in relationship with me. Um, and so God's voice speaks from a mountainside. They hear the very voice of God teaching the commands of God from a mountain. Uh, there's only one other place in Scripture where we kind of see that. Anyone have a guess? On a mountainside, God himself speaking commands. The Sermon on the Mount, right? That's where Jesus, God in the flesh, does the same thing and says that, that this 
law will not be abolished. I do not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And so the law remains. It, it is to be fulfilled. It isn't abrogated. We don't just say, well, now there's no law. No, it gets fulfilled in Christ. That's important to understand. So though we are not under the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, and so we don't relate to this covenant in the same way they would have, God's law persists and gets fulfilled in Christ. Now, of course, we learned about that was it last week, I think. Uh, Jeremiah 31 teaches us that in the new covenant now, as we run to Jesus for grace and forgiveness and new life, we experience new life in union with him, and the law gets written on our hearts. So there's something powerful that goes on in our new, new relationship with Christ, with God through Christ, is the law gets written on our hearts. Um, and the law is the details of God's love. That's really what it is, right? Jesus sums up the law by saying, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself, right? That's how he sums it up. And so the law is really the details of loving God. So these first four commandments are the details of what it means to love God. It's important to understand some things about the law as we look at it. The law in Scripture is given different ways. It can be given in the positive or the negative. In other words, it can be a command to do something or not do something else, right? So keep the Sabbath holy, that's a positive command. I want you to keep the Sabbath holy. You could put it negatively, which is don't violate the Sabbath. And in the Ten Commandments, some of these are positive, some are negative. So it, it says, do not murder. You shall negative, right? So you shall not murder. Sometimes the commands are concise, like in the Ten Commandments, but elsewhere they can be expounded. So Jesus expounds on the commandment, do not murder, on the Sermon on the Mount, right? Where he says, if you are angry with your brother, you've committed murder in your heart. If you live in anger towards your brother, you've committed murder in your heart. So he expounds on it. And that's really important to understand. So these Ten Commandments are not meant to be taken only as what's said here, but what principle they and value they represent. So each of the commandments we can dig into and look at the other aspects of them. So if it's a negative commandment, there must be a positive value that it's representing. And if it's said concisely, there must be ways to apply it and expound on it in Scripture and elsewhere. And really, we'll see in Scripture... Um, Chapters 21 through 23, I'll go through rather quickly later. Uh, those are an expansion of what's in chapter 20. And we have whole books, right? Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, expansion. Um, all in all, there are 613 commands in the Old Covenant, and there are more in the New Covenant. Anyone know the number? I can't hear anybody out, out there in online land, but... 1,050, so 1050. So there are more New Testament commands than old. Um, and New Testament believers, we are free from the law as our judge and executioner, but not free from the law as far as living under it and learning to love the Lord, to fulfill the law, as Jesus said. The law is about love and goodness. So all these commands in the Old Testament and the New Testament point to an infinitely good and glorious God and His indescribable kingdom of goodness under him. That's what the law is about. The law is good and it's right. It's meant to function in three important ways. So theologians talk about the three uses of the law. I think this is important to understand because it will help us know how to relate to the law. First, the law is to serve as a mirror. I think we have some pictures to show, Dan. Um, as a mirror. 
So the law is to be a mirror. It's something that we look into. And, and it's a perfect mirror. It's a moral mirror. And when we look at the law, it shows us what we look like. It shows us what we look like morally. It reveals all that's good and all that's not so good. The older I get, the more the mirror shows that that's not so good. Um, but it, the law of, the, of, the, of God is a moral mirror, and it shows us what's not so good, what needs fixing in our lives. It can be scary at times, but the point of this mirror of the law is not to despair, nor to think, I look really good. Um, it's not to have confidence in ourselves. We shouldn't. But to see ourselves honestly that we might run to God for help and rescue, for mercy and strength to obey his law. So it acts as a mirror that reveals truth that we might be convicted and run to the Lord. Not that we might think, I'm going to just pick myself up by the bootstraps and get it right. No, we might say, I'm a mess and only God can help me. That's how that mirror is supposed to function. Secondly, the law is used as a policeman. Um, you know when you're driving down the highway and you see one of these on the side of the road, when you're going 75 along with all the other traffic, what happens? Everybody slows down to like 45 miles per hour, right? That's the effect of the policeman. Um, it, it is a check on us, and that's a second use of God's law. It's a check on culture to say, slow down. Stop being so crazy. That's not right. And it's a good thing to have that. Um, people don't necessarily want to obey the speed limit, right? I mean, ultimately, they should want to do what's, what's right. Um, and sometimes the police are there just to get people to be checked. And that's how the law can work as well. It just checks us and it slows us down and, and, it, and it gets us to, to stop speeding, to speak metaphorically, stop doing what's wrong. The third use of the law is as a map. And the idea here is as we look in the mirror um, and we run to Jesus for forgiveness and help, um, we need a map for our journey. So I think we have a picture of a map, if that helps you to visualize that. Um, God's law becomes a map that directs us in God's way. So we look in the mirror, we have the police check us, and we run to God for help, for forgiveness and help. And in Jesus, we have that. Amazingly, Jesus obeyed the law. He fulfilled our righteousness. He only did what was right. And then he offered that glorious good life on the cross for you and for me. He died in our place, took our sins. The, the penalty of sin, the penalty of law-breaking is death. Spiritual death, eternal spiritual death. He took that on himself. Died in our place. Broke the power of sin. And then rose again victorious over sin and death. And in him, through faith in him, we have new life. We have forgiveness and new life. And he writes the law in our hearts. And now the law is not our enemy. It's our friend. It's our map. And so the law shows us what it, what it looks like, what love looks like. What are the details of love? What are the details of this journey? So those are the three uses of the law. Those are important to understand. I think will help us relate to the law in a helpful way. Mirror policeman, and map. With that in mind, let's dig into these commands. So the first command is, you shall have no other gods before me. God commands these people that they shall have no other gods before him. Um, 
what is a God? That's probably important to understand, right? What is a God? Well, a God, uh, the, the people, the original audience of the Israelites would have understood well enough. They came from Egypt where there are many gods. The ancient world was full of gods, uh, full of polytheism, the belief in many gods. And each god, uh, so-called, was a supernatural being who was more powerful than humans. So he, a god is a higher power. Um, and in their case, uh, this higher power was able to do miraculous deeds and control aspects of the natural world. Um, he, they had uh, different levels of power. Some had great power, some just barely more than a human, but they all had more power than a human. And so you looked to these so-called gods uh, for help. Um, they were in charge of the world in some way, and so if you could kind of have a good relationship with that god or goddess, um, they would kind of take care of things. So you might need to pray and offer sacrifices to keep them happy and on your side. Um, and if you did, you'd, you'd get benefit. They'd, they'd bring some success to your life in some way. So this is, uh, this is what a god is. This is what was understood historically. It's no different today, actually, though we may not have a pantheon of gods and goddesses like some cultures have and some cultures do. Anytime we look to a higher power to give us the strength we need, the purpose we need, um, the sense of destiny that we need, the sense of rest that we need, that is a God. So it needn't be an actual being that we would define. It could be something else. It could be anything. Um, it could be things like food. It could be things like alcohol or drugs. It could be things like sex. It could be things just like order and control where we, we look to that thing as what gets us going, what keeps us going, what, what gives us strength, what is our refuge and strength, what makes us successful. And we'll often take things that are legitimate in the right place and elevate them to, a, the, to operate like a higher power when they're all meant to actually point to the high, only true higher power, God himself. And so God says, you shall have no other gods before me. He is the only God, and, and they are to have no other gods before, before him. Now, you might think, well, is he acknowledging that there are other gods? As long as they're not before him, you can still have them. You know, he just wants to be first in line. That's not what he means here. The before me means before my face. And God sees all, right? God is over all. He sees all. So basically, I don't want to see any other gods out there that you're following. I see all. There must be no other God but me alone, only the true God. Only the all-powerful, the only good and glorious God. Now, that's a good thing because he is God. He's the only God. He's the ultimate higher power. He's the only one who is the supreme being. He is the source of all things. He is the creator of creation. All things exist through him. And so it would be foolish for us to pursue other gods. And it is good of the Lord to point to himself. He alone is good. He is most powerful. He's the author and sustainer of, of life and truth. He's true and always loving and merciful and wise. He's, he's gracious. He's pure and holy. He's worthy. And so we mustn't have any other gods before him. This is a good thing. Whatever God that we serve, we will be that God's slave. That's how things work. That's how we're made. That's how creation is. That's how things are. We will serve whatever God we worship. 
and, and every God will enslave us, but the, the only true God to live under him as his slaves and servants is freedom and joy because he's good and holy and merciful, and he's made us in his image to have a relationship with him, to thrive in him. And if we bow down to false gods, we'll be enslaved by those gods. And we see that, don't we? People who bow down to things like heroin or alcohol or pornography or bad relationships or whatever else it might be, they get enslaved and they ultimately are destroyed. And I would submit to you that all false religions ultimately will enslave and destroy their followers. Now, we live in a world that's been tremendously influenced by Christianity and so the, the, the positive benefits of Christianity have kind of tempered those things. But if they were removed, you would see misery and destruction. You need only to look at, Christi uh, at the Western world before Christianity to see such things. And, and in that world, there was no place for, for tolerance. There was no freedom of conscience. There was no place for the weak. There was no uh, respect for human life. Little room for equality between the sexes or different socioeconomic groups, all these things that we take for granted as virtues are really Christian virtues that have influenced society, whether it's explicitly Christian or not. And that's a good thing. We're glad for that. But life without the true God at the center will ultimately lead to misery and, and destruction. And so God in his goodness says, you shall have no other gods before me. And, and the positive side of this is to have him as our only true God, to seek him as the one who gives us happiness and joy, who gives us strength and peace, to seek him as our ultimate reward, to know him, to have him as, as the one that motivates us. That's the positive side of this. And there's no other object of our attention and our energies and our affections and our thoughts that's worthy but God alone. So it's a good question to ask yourself if you want to evaluate whether you're obeying this commandment. What, what do I really want? Where do I go when I'm needy? What am I looking forward to ultimately in life? What do I think heaven's going to be about? And if the answer is God and his goodness, then he's your God. But if it's something else, even if it's a good thing, if that's the ultimate thing you're looking for, you've replaced God with a false God. We show our love for God by having him as our only God. Second commandment, you should not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. So the second commandment fits with the first, of course, but it's, it is more detailed. You're not only not to have other gods and have them as, as images, but you're actually not to make an image of the true God either. You're not to use the carved image or likeness of the true God as worship. Now, this is not a prohibition from the use of art or images or carvings because the tabernacle had images of cherubim and woven in and also on the, uh, the seat of atonement were carved angels, the cherubim. So it's not saying you can't use any carvings or artistry, but you mustn't use that as a proxy for God. God is spirit. He's not physical. He is the creator. He's not creation. And so we don't use creation as something that embodies God. It points to God, 
but it doesn't embody him. And so we're not to make images of him, to worship him. Uh, he is beyond his creation. Creation points us to him, but creation is not him. The only image of God that we see ultimately in, in the Bible is mankind. But we don't worship people. We look at people as the picture of God so that we might look to God and worship him. So to love God means we worship him without the use of idols and, and images, but we understand that he's beyond his creation. His creation's glorious. There's much to see and enjoy, but he is beyond it. And so we worship him appropriately. In spirit and in truth is how we worship him. John chapter 4 speaks of this, that we worship him in spirit and in truth, according to the word. So biblically defined spirit-empowered worship is what he calls to us. He's jealous for this. He wants us to worship him in truth and to know him in truth. And he's a God who's a jealous God. He's not, he's not okay with us doing it our own way. He wants us to know him and relate to him his way so we might truly know him and enjoy him. And he, and he promises actually that those who hate me, I will, I will bring the consequences of their sins on, on them and to the third and fourth generation. But those who love me, there'll be blessing on to the thousands of generations, uh, the thousands means thousands of generations, who love and keep my commandments. There are consequences for our choices. And the wrong choices of parents do get visited on the children. Now, they needn't continue because there's always mercy and rescue in Christ to stop those cycles. But left to themselves, that's what happens. Sin has a repercussions on following generations, and we need rescue from that. And yet God brings great blessing through those who love him and trust him. So how we worship matters. And his word is to define how we worship. So we as a church, and as we gather on Sundays, we define how we worship by the scriptures. Now, I don't mean to say that the Bible tells us which song to sing on a particular Sunday or what color the carpet or chairs ought to be. But the scriptures instruct us on the certain key and core elements of worship, the, the nature of our worship, the elements. So we sing songs. We proclaim God's word, we pray, we celebrate the sacraments, we have common confessions of biblical truths, we include prophetic words in the, and the exercise of spiritual gifts. These are all in the, in the scriptures, and this is how God calls us to worship him. This is how we love God. We worship him according to the word and the power of the Spirit. Of course, as we look at the word for how we worship, we will see that we're called to gather, to not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, or as some are required by the state laws to do. Now, that doesn't mean that there are no exceptions to that. It's to be understood, of course, right? You can't, you can't always be present. The Apostle Paul wasn't always present with everybody, and, and there are understandable reasons for exceptions, but the norm is to be together physically. And so what we're in now is an exception that's necessitated by the pandemic, but it's not the norm, and oh, how we long for the norm. How we long to be back together. To be together in each other's presence, to share and worship here in this room. To minister to each other, to enjoy God together. I can't wait. And I trust that, uh, as the governor of Massachusetts has indicated after May 18th, 
will start to transition. We as a church are planning on this. Um, the first phase will likely not be much different than right now. We'll probably have to be mostly online, but by phase two, phase three, so late May, early June, we trust we can actually start having folks here maybe by mid-June, have a full a building once again. It's going to be so sweet. <laughs> it's going to be so sweet. We love God by worshiping Him His way in spirit and truth. Third commandment, no taking of the Lord's name in vain, no swearing, as we say. Um, we love God by speaking of His name with respect and love. If you love God, you don't abuse His name. And, and what we say with our words is really important. Our words, first off, they indicate our hearts. Matthew 12, 34, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Our words matter because they point to the heart. But there's the other side of it too. James chapter 3 speaks of the tongue directing the life. He says, if we put bits in the mouths of horses so they obey us, we guide their whole bodies. Look at the ships. They are so large, they're driven by strong winds, but are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. So our, our tongues indicate our hearts, but our tongues also direct our lives. What we say matters. And so if we're going to love the Lord, of course what we say about Him matters. And not taking His name in vain, not using His name in a flippant, uh, irreverent way. We get that, right? I mean, we understand. <clears throat> if you love and respect someone, you don't abuse her name, right? If you have your sweet grandma Gladys, she's the nicest person on earth, the best person you know, you'd be upset if somebody said, what the Gladys are you doing? Or like, oh my Gladys, you're such an idiot. You'd be upset. And it wouldn't help if they said uh, some euphemism of it by like, what the Gladys are you doing? You'd be like, I know you're still speaking about my grandmother Gladys. It's the same way with God. We don't use his name flippantly and in vain. We honor him. We love him. What we say matters. And what we say will direct us. So, so honoring him with what we say about him matters. Speaking about him with gratitude and joy and using his name as a, as a precious thing. It's a powerful thing. The name of the Lord is. That's why people use it in swears. But for us as believers, of course, we love that name. And so we speak of it in worship. And we speak of it to bless you. We say, God, bless you. We don't curse with God's name. We love God and what we say about him. Fourth commandment, keep the Sabbath. We show our love for God and how we live out our rhythms of life. And for the Israelites, this included keeping the Sabbath holy. They were to rest on the last day of the week. It was Saturday. The Sabbath is Saturday, not Sunday, in the Old Testament. It was to mark them as a special people. It was actually unique among cultures of the day to take a whole day to rest, to not work all seven days. And it was a unique experience for them because when they were slaves in Egypt, they worked 24-7. I mean, they got to sleep when Master would let them. But they didn't have any days off. And now in the Lord, they are free and no longer slaves to Egypt, but slaves to him. And he's a good master. He's gracious. 
And it says here in this section that uh, the reason given here is for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So the Sabbath day is a day of rest and it's a day of culmination of creation. This teaches us something really important. That creation is made for rest. Creation is made for enjoyment. Creation is made for peace and prosperity. That's the intent. So there's a goal to creation, to this place of rest and, and thriving in the Lord. And so God rescues them from Egypt where they don't have a day of rest. He takes them out and he restores his creation intent by rescuing them and bringing them to the promised land. And that is a type of the Garden of Eden, actually. And we'll see the later, the tabernacle is a type of the Garden of Eden as well. So there's a picture here to the Israelites that God's intention is to take you out of slavery into rest, to live in relationship with him in this place of peace and prosperity. And just as I made creation this way, and just as I rescued this way, you're to celebrate it in a real way every week. That's instructive. Isn't it interesting to see it's not just a concept that doesn't have any concrete working out. Because God could say, you're free, I, I made you for rest, but just go ahead and keep on working seven days a week and don't make any changes. No. We need to live out and we need to create ways to celebrate and habits and lifestyles that mark these core truths. Otherwise, it will end up not being functioning important truths in our lives. And so God in his goodness wants them to be marked by a day of rest. It's a profound thing to every week take a day where everybody rested from normal work. Everybody, right? So it lists everybody, even a sojourner, if, even if someone is just passing through, if they're there with you, they rest with you. There's no work to go on. Total rest and enjoyment of God's blessings. Now, again, if we read the story and we read elsewhere, we will see that they failed to enter that rest. They failed to believe God and obey Him and walk in His ways. They needed a better covenant. And Jesus has come as the true Israel, the true Adam, who has obeyed and fulfilled all righteousness, died for us, rose again, and now in Him, through faith in Him, through union with Him, we have rest. Because on the cross, when He paid for our sins, He offered up that righteous life, He says, it is finished. The work is done. The law has been satisfied. The perfect man that all men and women were called to be but have fallen short of has come and obeyed and fulfilled and pleased the Father's right demands and offered his life in our place. And now through faith in him, through simple faith in him, simply turning from our self-efforts, turning from our sin, and embracing what Jesus has done for us, through that simple faith, we are connected to him, forgiven, and we find rest. We're counted righteous as if we had obeyed the law perfectly like Jesus. We're forgiven for our failures, and now we have new life in us and a law on our hearts, and this rest in our lives, even if we're amidst striving and difficulty, even if we're going through things like a pandemic, there's rest in Jesus. We're safe. We're with him. 
And no matter what might happen to our bodies, we belong to the Lord. Our souls are with Him and we'll come back in the new creation with new bodies for the fulfillment of that rest. And so we have rest in Him. And so we celebrate the Sabbath now on Sundays because Jesus rose again on Sunday to bring that rest. And now it initiates the new, the new kingdom, the new creation. And so we celebrate on Sundays to celebrate that rest. And so Sunday should be our day where we rest in, in, in very similar ways to the Old Testament Sabbath. It's a wonderful opportunity to remind ourselves what we're made for, to enjoy God and worship Him forever. If we love God, we'll make Sunday the highlight of our week. And so I encourage you to think of this this way, to think of Sundays in line with this commandment, the fourth commandment in line with what Jesus has done, to make Sundays a time to worship and enjoy God, to mark your life with this rest that you have, to make worship and being in God's presence with His people the most important thing about Sunday. Don't let sports and movies and entertainment displace the proper enjoyment and worship of God, coming and being with the church, gathered worship, taking time to be with friends and family maybe afterwards, having lunch together, having people over, and talking about God and His goodness and rest together. Literally resting, perhaps. There are many ways we can make Sunday special, and I think we're called to that. We express our love to God by making Sunday special as we're able the Puritans actually used to start their Sunday celebration Saturday night. And it would go through Sunday night. And, and, and the New England Puritans would do something actually that um, every Saturday they didn't want to work once sun went down. So dinner, which is in the wintertime, right, is after dark. Um, they didn't want to cook dinner. So they would start their dinner, cooking their dinner like the night before. And they used a traditional New England dish derived from the, the Native Americans in, in New England. It was a dish of baked beans with pork in them. And they would start that cooking, and then they would be all ready. They wouldn't have to work on it. They'd just take it out and enjoy it Saturday night together as families. Or they would come together in the church and eat the ham and beans. And if you grew up in a mainline church in New England, that still exists. Ham and bean suppers, right? That's what it, where it comes from, the Puritan celebration of the Sabbath. I'm not saying let's go back to heaven being supper, right? It's all about heaven being supper, and then we'll fulfill the law that way. But it was a, a real way to live it out, and I would just encourage you to do the same. Maybe Saturday nights you go to bed early. Maybe Saturday nights you start your Sabbath then. You just start to rest and enjoy. I have a friend who actually, uh, on the way he celebrates, is he uses candles, and, and they turn the lights out, they turn all the media off, they light the candles, and they pray. And they, they celebrate the Sabbath, the, the rest of God, and they read the Word together and sing and so forth. So, so there are all sorts of ways to do this. Let's, let's do that. Let's keep Sunday as a day of celebration and rest. Let's be together. I'd love to see, uh, once we get back together, Sunday care groups restart. If you're able, that's one way to do it. Some of us, that's not going to serve us. For others, that'd be a wonderful way. So after church, you get together. Um, I know the young adults do that on Sundays. So there's all sorts of ways for us to celebrate and to love the Lord by worshiping on Sundays appropriately. So as I conclude, let's think through these wonderful commandments in light of what I said earlier, these purposes of the law, right? The mirror, the police, and the map. 
So let's, let the mirror do the work. Let these commandments examine our hearts and our lives and ask us, do I really love God? If you love God, you will trust in Him and delight in Him as your, higher, your only higher power. If you love God, you will worship Him in spirit and in truth, His way. If you love the Lord, you'll honor Him with how you speak of Him. If you love the Lord, you will worship Him with making Sundays important. So let the mirror have its work in your life and on your heart. Let that police car slow you down. Wow, maybe I need to slow down and stop doing what I've been doing. Let it be a check. But then run to Jesus, right? He alone fulfills the law. He is righteous. So we run to Him as our righteousness. And we run to Him as the sacrifice for our sins. His blood cleanses us from our sin. And if we are going to look at these laws, honestly, we're all going to see something in the mirror. We're all going to see sin. That's why the good news is so good. His blood was shed for us so we could be forgiven. His life was given for us so that we could have new life and have the law on our hearts and begin to say, oh, how I love your law. How I love to be there on Sundays. How I love to honor you with your name. How I love to have you as my refuge and strength. So run to him and use that map to love him more. Let's just take uh, a minute or so. Consider how the law would affect us, how to respond to these truths, and then Toby will come up to transition us to communion.